Hello, everyone. How you doing? Are you taking care of yourselves right now? I just want to note that taking care of ourselves, even though that's something that we continue to say over and over, it's not always that easy. And I had a post on Instagram recently. Somebody had shared, actually, my friend Margaret had shared a picture of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And at the top is self-actualization. It says, we are not here. (laughs) And the bottom is our basic needs and safety. And it says, we are here. And it was a good reminder that even though we might have aspirations to work out or lose weight or meditate, we might not be able to do those things right now because it feels so emotionally difficult. So I just wanted to let you know that If you're listening to this, that means you're alive. Congratulations for still being alive. And I'm not being facetious about that. I think just the fact that we are putting one foot in front of the other and waking up and putting clothes on, even if they be pajamas, congratulations to you for doing that for yourself. So hope you're taking care. Anyway, I'm Sarah Buino. And I am the host of Conversations with a Wounded Healer. This is a podcast where I interview other people in healing professions and talk about the intersection of caring for self while caring for others. And I'm super excited to introduce you to today's guest. But before we get to that, let me also do a little shout out for Patreon. If you don't know what Patreon is, it's a website where you can give money to folks who are providing services that you feel like you want to pay for. Because this podcast is free for you, but it does cost money to produce. And I know people are going through a tough time right now. So please do not extend yourself if it's not something that is within your budget. But if it is within your budget, I would be ever so grateful if you would be able to make a donation of any size is truly supportive and just warms my heart. So if you go to patreon.com slash woundedhealer, And that's healer spelled H-E-A-L-R. I know, guys. I know. I know. Wasn't thinking when I did that. Anyway, (laughs) uh, I mentioned in the intro for the last episode, I've got a couple of virtual speaking gigs coming up in June. So just wanted to share that information again. On June 3rd, which is a Wednesday at 11 a.m. Central Time for the Illinois Higher Education Center, I'll be doing a one-hour webinar on trauma and substance abuse. And then on Tuesday, June 16th at 1 p.m. Central for the New Hampshire Alcohol Drug Abuse Counselor Association, I'll be doing a presentation on the wounded healer. So if you're so inclined and you are a therapist, social worker, psychologist, or maybe someone who's even just interested, I don't know, I guess anybody can join. (laughs) If you want to join us there, we will be posting all the information on the show notes for that. So Without further ado, let me tell you about today's guests. So I was able to connect with Carrie and Ben via the Modern Therapist Survival Guide podcast. I interviewed uh, Katie and Kurt back in March, and I was so excited when I heard Carrie and Ben on an episode of Modern Therapist Survival Guide reached out to them and said, I need to have you on my show too. So let me tell you about their podcast, Very Bad Therapy. So Very Bad Therapy gives voice to the stories that begin with an exasperated, you would not believe what happened with my therapist. Weekly episodes explore real-life stories of very bad therapy experiences as hosts Carrie Weta and Ben Feynman seek to learn from diverse guests and experts in the field who help shed a light on how things could have gone better. Supported by scientific research and a mission to bring out the best in psychotherapy through discussion of its worst moments, Very Bad Therapy is a corrective emotional experience for clinicians and clients alike. 
We just had a blast recording. This was all recorded before coronavirus, so we were just carefree and living it up. So I hope that I hope that you really enjoyed this episode with Carrie and Ben from Very Bad Therapy. I can't even tell you how excited I am for this conversation because. <laughs> <laughs> so listeners. Every episode I record, I say we do 10 seconds of silence. My editor likes to pull out some white noise and there's, all you know, there's people like drinking water, like clanking cups or whatever. But Ben goes, is this where the silence is supposed to be? <laughs> We've already been chatting for like 10 minutes. So I already feel like I'm best friends with Ben and Carrie from Very Bad Therapy. And I just I can't wait to dig in. How are you guys? Yay, good. So happy to be here. Doing Yay. great. Thanks, Sarah. Yay. So why don't you tell people first and foremost, what is Very Bad Therapy and how did it come to be? Go on, Ben. It's okay. your it's your baby. So for background, Carrie and I are both... Wait, hold on. I need to pause. You said it's your baby? Yeah. It's our baby. Well, it is our baby, but like you came up with the idea. Oh. It was ultimately... Fair. Yeah. Okay. So you <laughs> conceived the baby... You conceived the baby and then like I'm I getting, helped you carry it. I'm getting tremendously uncomfortable already. <laughs> you don't like this analogy? <laughs> no, this happens regularly. I always like to see how uncomfortable I can get that. Amazing. For background, Carrie and I are both at the time of this recording still graduate students. So we're both about to get our master's in marriage and family therapy. And we met a kind of like a chance occurrence through like a mutual mentor, I guess you could say. We're in different graduate programs. We both live in Los Angeles. And both Carrie and I felt that as much as we were getting out of our graduate education, there was something curious about what was left out of the equation. Specifically, how to be a better therapist, what is actually effective for clients. And we kind of had this parallel process before we met of coming across that research and wondering, why is it that this is left out of what we're being taught? And also, mm -hmm. why is it that we're not hearing specific client voices in this process if as everybody says, they are the most important part of the work we do. And so we got together and thought, well, what if we created a platform to hear client stories, but specifically stories of bad therapy, because we only hear about good therapy when we're learning. We see videos of the people who founded, you know, the famous modalities that we learn mm -hmm. doing it perfectly. And that isn't realistic. Nobody is going to go in and do something flawlessly because therapy is a, it's a shared mess. It's like, it's a series of mistakes. <laughs> I love that, a shared mess. <laughs> yeah, that you sift through together and co-create something amazing. And we only learn about what looks amazing for the most part in grad school. And so Carrie and I said, well, let's create a platform to invite people on, not just to share their experience, but mm -hmm. what goes wrong so we can learn from our mistakes. Because in my personal opinion, that's the best way to learn is by mm -hmm. seeing what you did wrong and repeating it until you do it right. And it's really hard to know what it is you're doing wrong in therapy because there really isn't a way to get that feedback. Now, that's right. something we can go off on a tangent on about client feedback and how important it is. But that's, that's I'm a, sure I left a lot a, out. What do you have to add, Carrie? When Ben brought this idea up to me, my first thought was like, absolutely. And I think because every therapist or therapist in training, I think secretly has always wondered, like, what exactly is this like for the client? And it's it's one of those things. We've talked to a few people after we launched the show that were like, this is so obvious. 
why did no one think of this before? But it, that's what happens. And I think in our field, there is this established, this is how we have done it. And there is this emphasis on the client experience. But it's almost like it has been taboo or or just like, oh, no, no, that that's too close to go interrogate a client about their experience in therapy. Mm. But I think secretly all therapists, especially at the beginning of their careers, are like dying mm-hmm. to know what is happening on the other side of the room. So we have been just so lucky that so many people have been willing to share their stories, want to share their stories. It's a bummer. It's a huge bummer that there are so many bad therapy stories. I know. <laughs> but it's it's been great for us, I think, on a selfish level as clinicians to hear all the different ways in which things can go wrong or can be perceived as bad experiences by clients. Mm-hmm. So that's what I think we've found to be the most valuable yeah. about doing the show. Yeah, it's... Oh, bad therapists. (laughs) Man, honestly, that's part of the reason I started this podcast, too, because not necessarily from the realm of therapists being bad, but from the realm of of watching people not engage in their own self-work, which is absolutely crucial. And so I wanted to be a, a voice for that and an inspiration for people to recognize that this is it's not optional. Like you have to do it. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And if there's like a a nice middle ground where a lot of the therapists we hear stories about did the kind of work that you and your guests on this show talk about, Carrie and I probably wouldn't have a podcast. Exactly. Right, Um, right. But I also want to speak to the notion of bad therapists because you had reflected on that. And I think to some extent, we're all bad therapists at times because so much Mm -hmm. of it is is in the variability between the client, the therapist and the fit. Now, some therapists are way worse than others. We've heard stories of therapists asking their, yeah, therapists asking their clients out on a date uh, or therapists physically tackling their client, you know, like I didn't listen to those episodes yet. Jesus <laughs> Christ. Yeah, yeah. Stuff that goes beyond the pale. And like those, I think you can just like confidently place in the bucket of bad therapy. But we've also heard stories where at least I've reflected have been like, like, oh, shit, I've done those things. Right. And so much mm-hmm. of it is how it's received by the client and the space you create so the client can say, I don't feel safe or this isn't mm-hmm. okay. And if right. you as a therapist don't take that step, you're going to do bad therapy. Um, right. How does yeah. Scott Miller, Scott Miller described it as doing therapy as a series of mistakes or... Yeah, like therapy is just one long series of mistakes. Yeah. <laughs> Which... I like that. I love it too. It's such a great perspective because if you go into the room knowing that like all you can do is most likely like make mistakes and that's that's kind of the point, right? You are your own person like walking into that room and you're meeting another person who is a distinct individual who's had a series of experiences that you can begin to understand. Starting from that from that place of, I'm going to try it. I'm going to show up and I'm not perfect and I'm not an expert. And together, we're going to figure out what this is. I think that takes the pressure off, especially the theme that like I feel I keep harping on about that I've heard from our stories is therapist defensiveness. Yes. Which I think, right? Like that's going to be at the root of like every, almost every bad experience. And defensiveness comes from, I can't make a mistake. I wouldn't make a mistake. I'm the therapist. I'm the one in control in the room. Whereas if you're coming into the room from a place of humility, from a place of, it's okay Mm -hmm. if I fuck up. Excuse me. Can I swear on the show? Sorry. Please. Oh, okay. Okay. (laughs) We fuck it all up here. Yes. Oh, great, great, great. I am released. I have freedom. But yeah, like when we come from that place, we are far more able to hear feedback from our clients as opposed to a place of what I'm doing is right. And then anything negative from the client kind of throws my whole reality out of Mm -hmm. whack. 
And if you have not done your own self-work, you don't have the ability to put your ego to the side. That's that's at least what I see. Absolutely. I think yeah. you're totally right. I think it, what happens then, like if you haven't done your own work, I think sometimes, at least from the stories that we've heard, it seems like some therapists have like their identity becomes dependent on what's happening in the room going the way they want it to, the way they want it to. Can I tell you a story? Yes, please. So this is this is exactly what's happening. My husband just graduated with his master's in social work. So he's now in the field. Congrats to your husband. Right. Yay, Rich. Go, Rich. He doesn't fucking listen to this podcast, so he'll never hear that. <laughs> shout out. What an asshole. I love him so on, much. Rich. Step it up. <laughs> so he came home one day and he works. He basically does like clinical case management for really complex older adults and their families. And there was a situation where the client was essentially like, you're not doing what I've asked you to do. And Rich is getting yelled at and Rich comes home and he's just like beating himself up. And he he's flipping between beating himself up because he clearly didn't do the right thing because the client isn't happy. Or on the other hand, he was blaming the client for just being an asshole. Right. Sure. And so yeah. it's funny because when he comes home and he starts to talk about work, I'm like, do you want me to be a wife or a supervisor? <laughs> And such a good question. And he said, supervisor, like, go ahead and do that. And I was like, so when our worth is tied to the outcomes of the client, that's when we get caught in this binary of either I'm bad or the client's bad. And so what is the work that you need to do in order to be able to show up in this place and not take this personally, or at least be able to soften that, that loud voice in your head when this person is yelling at you? Yes, absolutely. I'm curious what prompted you to focus in on this specific issue and realizing like how critical self of the therapist work is. The initial reason I was featured on an, another podcast before I even thought about starting my own podcast and the the interview got so much positive feedback where people were telling me I've never heard vulnerability and professionalism held in the same space at the same time quite like that. I love and that. And I, I was like, are you kidding me? This is how my friends and I move through the world. So I just need to record these conversations so that everybody can hear this because I knew I wasn't unique or special. I knew that we could continue these conversations into infinity and that everybody could could recognize that. And one of the one of the biggest compliments, I literally got a, an Instagram message today from a person who is entering the field and just got into grad school. And they said, I thought I was too anxious to be a therapist because I, I just didn't have my shit figured out yet. And I hear that all the time. And that that is what this podcast is for, is telling those folks out there who've, who've been in pain and who've had trauma and been hurt and don't have it all figured out that you are the ones who need to be therapists because you are willing to do the work. I love this marriage of the themes of both of our podcasts that right. it's, it's not just okay, it is a feature of human existence right. to be wounded, to be flawed, to make mistakes. And it's the same exact thing as a therapist and right. having those qualities makes you a human being. It makes you a therapist. The work is around what happens afterward. Are you open to not being right. defensive about yourself yes. as a person or yourself as a therapist? And to bring that all together so you can be with a client and just create safety that it's okay. This is all of us. Now let's create something amazing. Exactly. Well, that's a really good segue to talk about you guys. So what is it that made you decide to be therapists? You first. Me first. Wow. Okay. Actually, you, what? 
Can I say something that isn't necessarily answering the question first? Yes, of course. I have been not dreading this question, but I think curious about how it's going to feel to answer in part because in our podcast, we interview clients, we Mm -hmm. interview like experts in the field, we look Mm -hmm. at research, we very rarely bring in the themes that you bring out so well in your guests and in yourself on the show. And I don't think that's an accident, at least for me, like my, my way of being in the world is very other oriented. Mm-hmm. And so the idea of talking about myself, talking about my story, talking about, you know, my wounds, all of it feels so, in a sense, I think I'll own the fact that it feels uncomfortable, especially yeah. on this kind of platform. So that's why I'm going Karen, first. you go first. <laughs> well, can I speak to that? Because I think, Please. Mm-hmm. you know, the, the beauty is, is that you showed up and you're willing to do it anyway. Right. And I think that fear is what stops so many people from taking courageous actions in their life. So I'm I'm grateful that you're showing up, even though you're uncomfortable. Thank you. Ben does that so, so much. And he is I know he's going to get so embarrassed right now because I'm just going to praise him. But he is actually one of the most other oriented people you will ever meet. And he does get so uncomfortable when people praise him. Uh Oh, (laughs) Um, so so he's getting a double dose right now. I see. (laughs) If you guys can see his face, he's getting red. He's laughing. This is also in part (laughs) how I like to make Ben uncomfortable. I love it. But I think that like that's also part of what makes Ben so special as a as a friend, as a colleague, but I'm sure also as clinician is he he shows up in this really incredible way to like receive feedback always from this place of humility. Sometimes he wrestles with things, but when he does wrestle with them, it's from like he's trying to square logic or he's trying to like philosophically wrestle with things. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever experienced you like descending into like emotional defensiveness. It's absolutely one of the most unique relationships I've ever been in. Mm. But to Ben's credit, I'm not sure like our show could necessarily like exist without Ben, without that particular like sensitivity or sensibility that he brings to it. Damn. Aww, you, right? You're welcome, I really appreciate ben. that. My editor so anyway, always laughs at the love fests that happen on this show. And I just want to reflect that just the, the relationship that you guys have is evident on your own show. And the care that you give to each other is just amplified right here. So bravo to both of you. Well, thank you for giving us like a space to do that. I feel like, yeah, I feel like we can't really do Well, if we do get into too much personal stuff on the show, Ben tries to edit it out. So <laughs> I'm just ben. kidding. I'm kidding, Ben. <laughs> Only a little. But yeah, I think we have a really great dynamic on the show mm-hmm. um, and and in real life, except I'm always late and Ben always has to remind me to do things, but <laughs> he's very forgiving. Amazing. So Kara, you were saying about uh, your about own personal story. Yeah. How how'd you become a therapist? Yeah. You see how I turned that around? You see right? how I reflected that right back at you. Okay, yeah, I'll start. So I started out my life in Sarah, this is probably gonna come as no surprise to you, in the entertainment industry. Ah. I was an actor for a very long time. And so that has been my career or had been my career for for many years. And at a certain point, sometime in my early 30s, I just really realized in many ways, it was not how I wanted to spend the rest of my life. It wasn't like there were certain fun things about it. But values wise, what I wanted to do with my time here on the planet, like it was not 
exactly matching up. So I had a real crisis of career of like what I wanted to who I wanted to be in the world. And so really had it was a very pragmatic, like sit down and what kind of job do I want? And Mm -hmm. I'm completely unashamed to say high on my list was auditioning. I had to drive all over the city every day of the year, constantly be available to go anywhere. I have no idea like what the next day is going to look like. So I wanted to go to the same office every day. I wanted to have Mm. a parking spot. I wanted to sit on a couch. And I, what I w- was really important to me was to do something that I felt I was suited to, that I would enjoy the work, but that also I could feel like I wasn't waiting to get to a point where I could do something good with what I was doing. I wanted whatever I did to make me feel good going home at the end of the day. Like I put something out there that wasn't just making somebody else money. So, I mean, that's kind of where... I was uh, looking into dog training for a very long time because I love my dog. (laughs) Then somehow like fell into my brother is a child and adolescent and forensic psychiatrist. My mom Mm. was a pediatric nurse. So Mm. the field was, I was aware of the field. And so at some point in there started like kind of looking into that. And the more I looked into it, the more I realized this was such a great fit. And early, early on in my Googling, just my Googling of of the field, one of the first resources that I came across was Ben Caldwell's blog online at psychotherapynotes.com, which is, I mean, I don't know, like in reading those posts, I just thought, oh my God, this is what people in this field are like. I need to do this. I want to be around these people. Mm -hmm. So that's how I ended up. Yeah, in the field. And I honestly like best decision I have ever made in my entire life. Mm-hmm. I am having I every day I'm like feeling I mean, I may be like frustrated and overwhelmed with all of the things, but on some level I feel like every day I feel fulfilled and mm-hmm. like I'm doing something of purpose. So that's awesome. how I ended up here. Fab. Ben? I think it's some ways how I ended up here is similar to Carrie in that I was in a profession that felt like inherently unfulfilling. So the the day I graduated, I got my undergraduate degree. My partner at the time and I packed up a U-Haul and drove from Boston to Las Vegas so I could try being a professional poker player. What? And I did that for 12 years. What a backstory. (laughs) I'm loving this. Uh, I did that for 12 years, lived in Las Vegas for for 10 of those 12 years. Holy shit. (laughs) (laughs) And it's a great job to have for many reasons. There's a lot of freedom and it's exciting and fun and challenging. But also, as I said, it's inherently unfulfilling. It is a zero-sum game. My Mm -hmm. wins Mm -hmm. are at the expense of somebody else. Mm. My happiness is oftentimes at the expense of somebody else. And it's not like one of those card counters who plays blackjack and beats like a faceless casino where there's no guilt in, (laughs) you know, taking money from billionaire casino owners in that context. But I think there's a lot of guilt in winning money from somebody who you get the sense is losing money that they need in order to live a fulfilling life. Wow. And over time, that sense of dissonance grew and grew in me. And then after uh, 10 years in Las Vegas, my my partner who I moved out with, he and I split up. And Mm. in that moment of something of a midlife crisis, I think you could call it, I realized I just wanted something that resembled a a completely clean slate. So I left Las Vegas and moved to Los Angeles and within short order, found myself doing my own work, reading a lot of books on psychology, on Buddhism, on philosophy, 
and connecting to something that I think felt dormant inside of me. Like it wasn't something new. It was just something that hadn't been awoken yet. Hmm. And in doing that work, realizing how much I didn't want to be in an environment that is sort of fueled by material excess, that is fueled by taking from others and wanting the exact opposite of that. And the more I touched on what felt so deeply true in myself, I realized that I'm not a special human being. This is something that exists in everybody. And what better path forward than to be a, a helper along that journey for others. And so that sort of nudged me into going back to school and getting my master's. And like Carrie said, I feel like it is the best decision I ever made because truthfully, I do it for myself. I know it sounds kind of paradoxical that the work that is directed at others mm -hmm. is for myself, but I feel like I get as much, if not more out of it than my clients do. Mm -hmm. And the day that stops being the case, I'm going to reflect inward and kind of worry about what's happening. But mm -hmm. it isn't altruistic. It's, it, mm -hmm. I mean, it, it does good in the world, but I get so much out of it that I just feel like so fulfilled. It feels so meaningful. I've never once woken up and said, oh man, I wish I didn't have to go see clients today. It doesn't mean I look forward to it right. every single time. It just means that when I go to work and when I leave work, there's something in me that has been nurtured, that needs to be nurtured for me to be as happy as I can be in life. And I didn't get that mm. really at any point until becoming a therapist. So I'm just so tremendously grateful for being in this field and the relationships I've built. It's, it's been just incredibly humbling and fantastic. Well, you both are amazing. First, I love you. We're best <laughs> friends already. The, the interesting thing that I'm hearing from both of you is that there's something about the changing of careers that creates some space for humility in a different way than I think I'm seeing some of my students who go straight through undergrad to grad school, especially it, I don't I don't think you guys have this in the marriage and family. But in social work, we have what's called the advanced standing degree where someone can get their BSW and their MSW all within five years. Wow. And there's so much life experience that's mm -hmm. missed that I heard in both of your stories where you're like, you're doing a thing. You're like, I'm good at this thing, so I'm going to do it. And then at some point, there had to be that internal self-reflection of this isn't doing what I thought it was going to do for me. And for folks who go straight through, there's no forced reflection. Mm. I think that's so true. Ben, you're super into research, I know, from listening. So have you seen any research on on the difference between career changers who go into this field and people who go straight through? I haven't seen that research, but I have seen research that may challenge your hypothesis. Is that okay <laughs> Tell me more. to bring up? Duh. So there are so many things that we assume are correlated with being a better therapist, having mm -hmm. better outcomes with clients that don't bear out in the research. And age is one of them. So it's not right. specifically what you're speaking about, but it doesn't appear that a therapist who is in their 20s, for example, right. has any kind of deficiency in terms of their ability to be with clients as somebody in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and so on. So I don't know how that maps on to what you and Carrie were thinking, but I'll just put it out there into the world for people to process. Well, I think that, I mean, and this is what I love so much about when Ben does bring up the research, because it, it's such a good reminder that what like my personal experience, maybe it may not be the entirety of the story, which is, again, humility reinforcing, right? Mm -hmm. I feel like what you're talking about, Sarah, I feel has been anecdotally, my experience, not in terms of like better outcomes for clients, but right. 
yeah, in terms of the MFTs that I have known, like my colleagues who are younger, who went straight from undergrad into the graduate program, or maybe just took like a year or two off. It's not that I think some of them are just brilliant therapists. I Mm -hmm. mean, like better than me. I mean, like some of them are just already like fabulous. But I think what they struggle with, in addition to that, I don't, is that insecurity. I feel like they deal with insecurity or imposter syndrome a lot Mm. more than I do. Like Ben and I have had this conversation a lot. Like I feel like I have no imposter syndrome when it comes to this field Mm. because I know. Yeah. Like, and I, I think it's because like, I know I am doing the best I can. And I know that the research shows that that's at least good enough, you know? And so I feel like coupled with a sense of like humility going into the room and also not having my identity built on, on the other person's reaction. If the client outcomes aren't improving, that doesn't make me feel like I'm a bad therapist. It makes me think, what am I missing? I need to go to consultation, you know? But Mm -hmm. it's not like, oh my God, maybe I picked the wrong field, you know? And I feel like, unfortunately, I didn't see a lot of support for our younger students in my program. And my program was pretty mm-hmm. much mostly younger students. And there was a lot of assumption, I think, from the faculty that, well, this is a mass, this is a graduate program. You, you should be a mature adult at this point. And you should know what we mean when we say self of the therapist work. But these kids mm-hmm. are tw- 22, 23. Like, I didn't that... know what that shit meant. <laughs> no, I didn't know what it meant like five years ago. Come on. I, I'm I was working at Starbucks <laughs> at 22. Like, you can't right. possibly be focused on self-development when that's your context. Wait, right? hold on. What? Sorry. I didn't no, that's fine. I don't know if I agree with that. <laughs> oh, okay. Go ahead. I guess just for context, I have a lot of imposter syndrome. Oh, yeah, he does, which is ridiculous, <laughs> uh, but he does. <laughs> so there's there's an idea that like therapists are born and not made, so to speak. One of the other mm. things that's totally counterintuitive is that there's mm-hmm. no evidence to show that therapists on average get better with experience, which is mind blowing. Therapists right. can get better if they do certain things to that right. end. But if, if we take the idea that like therapists are born, not made, then the therapist who's at Starbucks in their early 20s could very well already like be expressing that ability to do the work of the self, that ability to be present with clients, just as somebody who like you in your early 20s or me in my early 20s, I would have been a terrible therapist. And it's not that I necessarily got there from a place of inadequacy, but rather got to where I was all along and just sort of brushed off the things that kept me from realizing what that was inside of me that let me be a better person, a better therapist, etc. I don't disagree with anything you just said. My sense is going back to like, I am thinking of one of my classmates in particular, who is younger, and really insecure about a lot of things, just didn't have a whole ton of life experience. And has to be again, I haven't I I saw her work a little bit in like our fieldwork classes when we saw reviewed videos, one of just the most gifted therapists. I mean, I would send my children to her to be raised like 100%. But she, I think, didn't have the same confidence in her abilities that I did. And I wonder if that comes from can come from for some people can come from age or having had a career already and then realize that like maybe a career doesn't constitute one's identity. I don't know. 
Mm-hmm. That's all. That's that's all I'm thinking of. And I, I guess I'm saying like, I hear what you're saying, and I and I totally agree with you. And I think that there actually are some very young people who do have that self awareness and are totally ready to go. And for them, I think that's a great a great idea. So I'm so sorry to interrupt. The thing that I heard yeah. you say that I think is so important is for the young people who are going into this field, they need the support to be able to develop this stuff sometimes. That's what yes. I heard you say that is missing. It's missing in all of our programs. I mean, I only teach at two universities, but I've got a lot of friends who teach too. And from what I, I hear about you know, your experiences, there's no time for us as professors to really uh, mentor some of the folks who need it. Things move so quickly. Like I'm teaching at an online university and I have eight weeks and 90 minutes once a week in order to teach them everything about addiction, right? And so the task that I have in front of me, it doesn't include mentorship, which is really why I went into teaching in the first place. And if we had more of a system that was supportive of nurturing all of these things that we're talking about that we know are so important for this career, it would be a whole different story. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, this might be a good space to shift into the healer question, which I'm guessing strikes fear in the heart of Ben, potentially. <laughs> I don't know. I, can I share my process around answering this question? She Love hasn't it. even asked the question yet, Ben. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> then you can share your process. Well, how do you feel about the term healer? Yes. I have been wrestling with this because I knew it was going to be asked mm-hmm. to the point where in having no idea how I feel, because I don't feel strongly one way or another, I actually messaged my mom <laughs> and said, what do you think about this term as it applies to me? Oh, what did Mama <laughs> Feynman say? Is that her last name? <laughs> uh, it isn't, but that's okay. Oh, damn it. <laughs> she always tells stories of getting phone calls when I was seven years old from the principal's office asking for Mrs. Feynman, and she knew that it was the principal's office because nobody else called her by that name. <laughs> right. <laughs> Wait, wait, the principal's office was calling. (laughs) I have a lot of questions about your childhood now, but okay, continue. I actually got in trouble for running a March Madness bracket when I was in sixth grade and collecting money for it. Of course. Totally separate story. Poker player. Um, Amazing. This is what I find out about Ben. Like he drops these things. Do you know he's also like a death metal drummer? I'm not (laughs) exaggerating. Let's start a band. Yes. Oh my God. Uh, So my mom responded, essentially saying, of course you are, and explained Mm -hmm. why from her perspective, the the field of psychotherapy and being a therapist is inherently healing. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't really specific about me. Uh, So I don't have have any real like good juicy info. Can I be Mm -hmm. totally honest? I was actually hoping that she would say something like really brilliant that praised me. So I could come on the show and say, well, I feel fairly indifferent about the term. But look my at how mommy the... says. Yeah, because she's always saying how great I am. But I didn't get that. I got a fairly boilerplate response about the as it pertains to the field itself. But oh, I guess so more funny. specifically, I do think the term healer applies to me. But I feel strongly, at least on a personal level, to not dictate that it does in all of my relationships to not bring that in mm-hmm. to work with clients with the expectation that I am a healer mm-hmm. uh, so that if something doesn't go well if there isn't progress that well if I'm a healer it, it must be located outside of me mm-hmm. uh, it, it's almost a, a way to create space for the times when I'm not a healer for the relationships professionally personally in which I make mistakes in which I hurt people so mm-hmm. I do think I'm a healer I also think I 
hurt people. And I think it's not necessarily for me to decide what label to affix to myself, which is not necessarily, I think, the answer that most people give on the show, but it is uh, what feels right for me. It is the first time somebody has reflected that I am a healer and I'm a herder, essentially. And I really love that reflection because that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Thank you, Carrie. You're welcome. Yeah. I mean, I guess my my initial reaction to like, am I a healer is very much from a kind of a postmodern reaction, which is like, that sounds like I'm applying healing to others, right? And that's very much like antithetical to how I approach the work. However, I've also been really, I'm interested or concerned or obsessed with, I'm not sure what the right term is, how our field is seen by clients, by lay people, by people who aren't in the field. Because I think that's really critically important. Mm -hmm. Like it's less important how we see ourselves and more important how we are seen. I'm very aware that most of our clients come in to the room because they've struggled with something for a very long time. They haven't been able to uh, fix it or be healed. And so they come Mm -hmm. seeking that and whatever that means to them, whether it means like some sort of emotional catharsis, whether it means like CBT tools, like whatever it means to them, they are in a sense seeking that. And so I do think if I'm presenting myself as a therapist, then I have a responsibility to show up how that person needs me to show up for them. And so if that means being a quote unquote healer, then awesome. It's still not going to change the fact that I don't think I can apply something to someone I can work with or facilitate. But I have a lot of respect for how our culture, how Western culture views medicine, the medical structure and psychotherapy, which for better or worse, has been kind of swept into the greater medicalized framework of care. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And like we may hate it as therapists, but our clients, that's the story they're getting from our culture is that psychotherapy is medicine for the mind. Take it. You'll be great. And as Ben has, you know, shared so much research on our show that suggests Heart and Soul of Change is a book I obviously cannot recommend enough. And it consolidates a lot of the research over the past several decades about psychotherapy, what works in Mm -hmm. psychotherapy, what is it actually effective. And one of the things that is demonstrated to be time and again, the most effective in psychotherapy is buy-in from both the client and the therapist. Hmm. And that that is what leads to positive client outcomes. And so I guess that just speaks to like, for me, if healing is what my client needs for me, I need to buy into being a healer. Sarah, can I ask you a question? Sure. Is it possible in your clinical judgment that the podcast that Carrie and I co-host and our comments on your podcast is one large defense mechanism to stay focused on other people and research to avoid doing our own work. It could be. Yes. Yes, it could be. I, I'm becoming acutely aware of this tendency of ours. And I'm, I'm really hoping to get some feedback. Well, I mean, truthfully, and I, I don't mean this to sound patronizing in any way, but in this point in your career, this is where you should be. You should be focused on how do I take care of these people? Because just being with a client is absolutely, that is the number one thing, right? Our presence, our care, our ability to connect and have empathy. And we have to have skills because if it were literally 
only relying on being with someone, then we wouldn't need therapy at all. So what I'm hearing you guys go through is such a natural process of combining the desire to care for others, the desire to do the own work, and the desire to develop the tools in order to to actually truly help people transform and heal. That's what I'm mm-hmm. hearing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Something that rubs me the wrong way in the field is there is sometime, I think in some corners, an overemphasis on the therapist experience, like mm-hmm. what's coming up for the therapist in the room, or which then becomes to sometimes I think the detriment of the field, an emphasis on what is coming up for the therapist all the time in all spaces. Mm-hmm. And sometimes like, and I don't know Sarah, if this has been your experience, but like for me, I have been in rooms with therapists, consultation groups, supervision groups, where it feels a lot more like acting classes I've been through, mm-hmm. where, you know, there is this kind of a elevation or this like glorification of the emotional experience and expression of the therapist. Mm. And I I strongly believe there is a difference between therapists like kind of wallowing in their own experience mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. therapists reflecting on what yes. is coming up for them, what's happening for them and being aware, I think in a very mindful way of how that might impact their care of a client. I think mm-hmm. there's a time and a place for therapists to go through their own emo- emotional experiences, whatever that may look like. It's our own personal therapy. Right. And supervision. Yeah. See, okay. Also, but to supervision, I feel like there is a line that is crossed in my experience too many times where supervision, which is time limited. I don't know how how you guys are, but we mostly have group supervision. So it's Mm -hmm. multiple clinicians Mm -hmm. with lots of clients for two hours, sharing two hours a week. And that would be restrictive. It's very restrictive. And you know, you're you're encouraged to not take up too much of the supervisor's time outside of your supervisor, like supervisory session. Like don't email, don't call too much because, you know, generally they're at this stage in our in our career, they're volunteering their time to to supervise. So those two hours, in my opinion, if they can't be reserved for our clients, we're doing our clients a disservice. And I think sometimes it does get hijacked by Mm -hmm. clinicians who are encouraged from who knows like what corner, but to use that as a space to go through their own personal experience. Well, I think let me tease out something there because there's, like you said, there's a difference between wallowing and reflecting. And I think there's a difference between using supervision to work through the feelings that come up as they relate to your ability to care for clients. And then there's you just Mm -hmm. taking up space with your own emotions. 100%. And that that is for the supervisor to be able to tease out, not for you to tease out yourself. And I can only, I mean, I only do, I do a little bit of group supervision, but but most of it is one-on-one. And in that, I'm usually trying to elicit more of the emotion from my staff and, and from other people that I supervise because it's like the spectrum, right? Like some people are too emotional and I'm trying to pull them towards the center and some people are less emotional and I'm trying to pull them towards the center. Yeah. Yeah. And I think if you're teasing out like for clinicians who like what kind of emotion is coming up for them around something they're wrestling with, with a client relationship, with a client who's maybe not progressing or something like that, I think is so critical. That's the self of the therapist work that we're talking about. Right. But maybe I'm I'm just like laying this at the feet of supervisors when, you know, or or not, maybe I'm not doing it enough. Maybe that's part of it. But I do think it's a special skill, right? For a supervisor to be able to hold space for a clinician who's kind of having things coming up for them and 
help tease out those pieces that are the connective tissue between the client or the clinician's experience and the client's treatment. Yeah. Yeah. I was just wondering if that was the longest answer you've gotten to what you think about the term healer. (laughs) (laughs) Now you're just being a dick and I love it so much. (laughs) This is like the critical piece of Ben Fine is like, I do, I will talk forever. And Ben always cuts me off and he's been getting more and more afraid to cut me off. And and so it's like, I start rambling more and more and I'm like, this is great. (laughs) Well, what you're saying is really important and there's just, there's so much involved in being a therapist. There's so much that we're looking at. There's so much that we're holding. And so I think it is important to really talk about this and break it down and, you know, see from your perspective as the person who's being supervised and my perspective as the person who's supervising and my perspective as a professor and all of these different angles, everything is worth talking about. There's so much, I think, of the supervisor's perspective, I would love to know. I mean, I feel for me that that's mm-hmm. that's just kind of uh, behind a curtain. Like, I'm mm-hmm. not sure like what it must be. It must be a lot because I know that like at least for one of the tracks here to become a supervisor, you have to get supervision of supervision, which oh, I always think is a funny phrase. But I think it speaks to like that. It's a very difficult position. Well, because truly, I've never been trained to be a supervisor. I just had really good supervisors and I emulate them. That's what I do in my work. And what I'm thinking about when I'm supervising is I'm holding, I'm holding, there's one holding space for me and the therapist. And then there's the holding space for me and the therapist and the client. And then there's the space of me, the therapist, the client and the client's experience. And so it is, it's, it's so meta, you guys. (laughs) (laughs) Let me, let me shift gears again, because I want to make sure we get to the wounded healer question before we wrap up, because I'm very curious your answers on that one. So are you a wounded healer, Ben? Uh, That's the question. Are you? Yeah, I think to some extent, I I almost have an easier, an easier time answering this one, because it feels more Mm -hmm. internal than dependent on somebody else's experience of me. I think we're all wounded. I think I am certainly mm-hmm. wounded. I think I've, compared to most, had a very privileged life. And so when I think of myself as wounded, it's really hard to tease that out from what that means in the context of other people's experience. But I think we all experience trauma, especially in the 2020 cultural landscape uh, on a daily basis, whether yeah, it's big T yeah. or little T. And mm-hmm. it, it feels like one of the most important tasks of a human being is to accept, or for me, I'll make this about myself. I think it's one of the, the things that I need to do on a daily basis or I need to do more of, broadly speaking, is connect with the parts of me that are wounded mm-hmm. because they impact the parts of me that aren't and they impact the way I am with my mm-hmm. clients and with my loved ones and, w- and with everybody in the world and with myself. Mm-hmm. I'm absolutely wounded and we can get into you know all of the, the fun details, but I think to some extent that's less of how I process it and more of trying to be with it in the present and staying mindful of how it impacts me and the people around me. That's awesome. Carrie? Uh, ditto. Everything Ben said. <laughs> same. Just copy it. Uh, same. Andrea, just just copy it and make the voice higher so it sounds like it's Carrie saying it. Exactly. That'd be great. Uh, please do that. I think that for me, there's, you know, there's such a connotation, a negative connotation around the word wounded. And to like kind of deconstruct that a little like, in the context of what Ben said, I feel like I think that everybody is in a sense wounded. Like even saying it, like I hesitate because it implies, I think, something that is a deficiency or or 
taken away or, and I think that's actually what makes us all good at the work. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also to Ben's point out about checking in with what are your wounds? Like what is, what mm-hmm. is different in you or what has uniquely impacted you? That's also where we can find our weaknesses as therapists. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, you know, this perfect double-edged sword. And so, yeah, I mean, I think we are all, we are all wounded. We're all uniquely wounded. And I love it because I think that this is a space that celebrates and makes use of that. Sarah, can I ask you a question? Of course. I may have missed an episode or two where this has come up, but I've never heard a guest ask you, how do you define wounded healer or just healer? When you ask that question to guests, kind of what is the lens through which you're using those words? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to define it for guests because I want to get a variety of answers. Because if I defined it very specifically, I would get the same answer every time and I don't want that. So Hmm. I think it's just like working with a client. You know, if a client says, you know, I'm broken or whatever, like, what does that mean? You know, explain that to me. I want to understand from their perspective. But for me the way I define it for myself, I do, I do think a healer is a, is a person who has dedicated themselves to helping people create change in their lives. And it can come in so many different forms. Cause I don't just interview therapists on here. I've interviewed tarot readers and astrologers and doctors and nurses and educators, right? Because I think that I think that everyone has the capacity to be a healer. Some of us have just chosen to do it for our professions. And then in terms of wounded, I I think I'm just really much aligned with what you said, Ben, that every single one of us is wounded. and, And it's a matter of, do we recognize that? And can we own that? And can we use it as information? Or is it using us as in ways to act out on people? Yeah, that's beautifully put. It's so funny what how you defined healer is almost verbatim how my mom defined healer. Aww. I mean, God, your mom and I would be best friends. <laughs> and <laughs> just on the on the topic of, you know, all, all the variety of guests you have on the show, I know we've talked a lot about psychotherapy, but one of the coolest things that Carrie and I have learned on our journey is the importance of the relationship between the healer and the person being healed. Mm-hmm. it transcends like any specific label around what that healer is. So I think one of the things that has blown my mind the most in learning about our field as it extends to psychiatry is that like the effect of the therapeutic alliance, it shows up more in the research in terms of what makes antidepressants effective than the medication itself. And if you take, uh, I think the statistic is the top third of psychiatrists and give their patients yeah. a placebo, those patients will have better outcomes than patients who receive the drug from the bottom third of psychiatrists. Your relationship with the person that is Mm -hmm. healing you is the most important thing, regardless of label, regardless of how we define any of it. And Mm -hmm. I guess that just brings in the importance of the work of the healer, the work of the therapist for the three of us Mm -hmm. in being able to sit with, sorry, I feel like I'm just doing your job now, like tying (laughs) things together and putting a bow on it and that's what uh, happens when you interview pros. Yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah. You know, oh, like you just made yes. Ben so uncomfortable. I know. I really, really love you guys. You're love just you. wonderful, reflective. Like, yeah, I love when 
people who are clearly really, really suited for the field are doing it. And the fact that you are, you're highlighting the client experience, I think is, is really needed and really important. I think your podcast, I think you will be surprised moving forward how healing your podcast is for other people and how healing it is for you. You know, yeah. I, I think you've already reflected that you're learning. You just started. You guys are like babies in the podcast world, but it, sorry, that sounds shitty. I don't want to be no. like, no, no, not at all. Like hundred percent. We have so much to learn. It's, but it's not even, it's learn is the wrong word. When I think about how I've been changed by the podcast, there's something that gets touched really deeply in me that transforms me. It's less about learning. It's more about transformation. And mm -hmm. I think, I think that your podcast specifically is going to be so healing for other people that the way that they express that to you is, will be transformative. Thanks, Sarah. Yeah, thank you so much. I, I feel like the same could be said for for the work you're doing. I can't thank you enough for like your emphasis, kind of illuminating these issues. And especially what you said earlier about kind of recognizing the lack of these kind of conversations for mm -hmm. beginners in the field and the work that you try to do to introduce that or provide that, I, I think is just so incredibly needed and wonderful. Thank you. Well, yay for both of all of us. Yay. <laughs> well, where can people find you? You can head over to our website at www.verybadtherapy.com. Uh, you can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher. I don't know. What's the Spotify. Android one? Spotify. Yeah. Wherever you get your podcasts. Wherever you right. get your podcasts. All right. of them. Awesome. Well, you're just a delight. And I'm so happy that we're connected. And I, I'm more than happy to support you in absolutely any way that I can. Thank you so much, Sarah. This has been a treat to talk to you. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much, Ben and Carrie, for joining us today. So now that you've listened to the whole episode, go find Very Bad Therapy on Spotify or iTunes or wait, it's called Apple Podcasts. Wherever you get your podcasts, go search for Very Bad Therapy and check out some of their hilarious and terrifying episodes. You can also find more information about them on my website at www.headhearttherapy.com slash podcast. Thanks as always to Andrea Clunder and the Creative Imposter Studios for editing, to Liam O'Donnell for the album art, and Ben Mueller for our theme music. Take care of yourselves. Until next time, bye-bye.